And welcome back to another edition of OU Radio OUR Podcast with Johnny McKeon, Sasha Bloom, Wayne Thompson Jr. sitting in studio. What up? How are you guys? I'm doing good, man. Doing good. It's Fight Club 16th anniversary. Yep. October 15th, 1999, this movie premiered. Are you serious? 1999? 1999, October 15th. Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, uh, Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, The movie did not do well. It was number one at the box office for the weekend, but then after that it tanked. Some really? people, yeah. Some people argue that Rosie O'Donnell spoiled it. No, because she was on. Not for me. She went kitchen gloves on. You know she doesn't like Brad Pitt. Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie O'Donnell gave away the twist ending on TV. Like the week oh. it came out, she's like, "I don't. I was watching this movie, and I guess he's him, and he's it, and Edward Norton and Brad Pitt are the same person. I don't get it." Oh man, what kind of backlash came out of that? Uh, I don't. It, uh, it, the movie didn't do well, <laughs> but wow. then, but then it, it developed a cult following uh, on DVD and videotape when it came out, and people loved it. I, I remember I was in seventh grade when it came out, and the first time I saw it, I didn't really, I didn't really get it. You know, like I didn't quite understand it. it. It took multiple viewings as I got older that I really started to kind of understand what the movie was about and what it really represented and the themes and all that. It's definitely a cultural phenomenon. I know that it's like most guys, it's in their top fives. Like most guys I've met, like they usually list that movie. Like Sasha, do you remember the film? Oh, yeah. I watched it many, many times. Like there were a lot of great things that came from it. The list of people you want to fight. Yeah. That was big. Like that took off in high school because I was. Actually, I was in college. I was 19 when that came out. Well, who was on your list? Do you remember? You. <laughs> <laughs> so let me get this right because I never really, I never really watched the show. I was like, I don't even think I was old enough to watch the show. It was PG-13, and my mom's very strict about oh, that. Oh, see, yeah, my parents yeah. weren't. Yeah, yeah there's like, yeah, go ahead and watch it. But yeah. um, no, like, so my take is what? It's about people who get stressed out by fighting, right? Is that what it is? <laughs> No, like, is that not it? No, 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 like, I thought it's like, we have this secret club, and we get to beat people up and stuff like that, and you're not supposed to do it. You keep it on the DL, right? Yeah, it it was about going against society and what it stood for. It was was taking yourself out of the rat race. It was taking yourself out of this predetermined life that you get when you wake up, you know, like when you're born. Like, uh, you know, you grow up, you have kids, you get married, you have the picket white fence, you go to the job that you hate. Like, yeah. that was uh, in rebellion against that. Huh. That's what that, that's basically what it represented. Because uh, uh, the, the the author, and I'm going to butcher his name because I've tried a million times to say it right. I can never say it right. Chuck Polinuk, it's transgressional fiction. So it is, it's, it's about marginalized characters that respond to society in illicit ways. Like, like me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> in a nutshell, yeah. yes. It probably is about you, huh? Yeah. yeah. And uh, yep. the film had heavy... Uh, uh, the film in- influenced a lot of my beliefs. Like, it, it uh, the heavy themes of existentialism were really ecstasy. interesting. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Yeah, the usage of ecstasy, ecstasy while watching the movie. Well, well... Well, more like the belief that life is meaningless and it's up to you to find like the meaning in life and it's up to you to determine your own worth and find your own way. And that, that, that those were big tenets of the film and I always enjoyed those aspects. Every time I watched the movie, 
I always forget that Brad Pitt is a figment of Edward Norton's imagination. Like to me, I oh, always great. forget. You that. just ruined the end. Spoiler Thank you, Rosie. One of the great Gosh. things that was going on when that movie came out is I was dating like the most beautiful woman I've ever been with. Like Rosie wait. O'Donnell. <laughs> Uh, that's my new flavor, boss. <laughs> I'm sure. No, she was like way outside of my league. Like yeah. out kicked coverage all day. Like she was a ten, I was a four. Like, yeah. What were you doing? Luck. <laughs> <laughs> and that was when God liked me. <laughs> oh, this kid's got a future. Let's give him a gorgeous woman. And it all went downhill after that. Yeah. But uh she was uh ended up being an all pack ten volleyball player and you know, she kind of screwed it up in terms of going to the Olympics and stuff. But she joined a fight club, and she started knocking out grown men. Oh, wow. god! Yeah. Like, it was underground, and she's she was like five foot seven Irish girl, uh, Kathleen. And she was just starting. Like, I picked her up one day on a date, and she's got a broken hand. And I was like, <laughs> what? I was like, what you do? And she's like, oh, I knocked this motherfucker's teeth out. And it's like, doing what? Oh, I joined a fight club. He's wondering how he got this girl. <laughs> Wow, yeah. yeah. You're wondering, and, really. Because she could manhandle you, bro. That's what, let's be honest. That's what it comes down to, the fact that she could manhandle you. Wow, man. You wanted some girl that could, you know, did force she, you down Did you stuff. ever get in a fight? Do you ever, like, square up in the parking lot? Like, I pinned her down a couple of times. Oh, yeah, she knocked your teeth out. It was yes, you, sir? bro. So so what about, what does this girl have to do? She beat fight? me in a scissor tournament. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! You got sharpened for sure, bro. <laughs> but that was how influential this movie was. Is you got this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Catholic high school girl, future Pac-10 girl, doing Fight Club with men. Yeah, because it really hit America right in its face. With, yeah. Oh, you live this IKEA lifestyle. You're working at your cubicle, guy, a keyboard warrior, and your life amounts to nothingness. Right. And that is your life. And that's going to be your kid's life. And deep inside your soul, you hate it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go beat up something beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Destroy something beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So why is there soap on the cover? That's what I was wondering. Because he made soap to finance his fight ring. Yeah. Uh, And he would would make soap out of the the, the, the fat from uh, surgical centers. Women's like. Uh, liposuction removals and stuff. Oh, wait. But, are you joking with no, me? No, that's what the movie... You need to watch the... I'll I, let you borrow the right? DVD. I need to, I'm going to let you borrow the DVD. Oh, You're gosh, I need out, to, bro. There's yeah. so many movies I need to catch up I with. mean, there's this great scene of uh, Brad Pitt, and he's all steroided out. I mean, just like a 14-pack. Peeled. And he's having intercourse, you know, to keep it clean for you, Wayne Thompson. <laughs> You know what? This isn't going on FD, FCC stuff or whatever, you know, so whatever. All right. I need yeah. to drink some water here, man. <laughs> tongue-tied. And so, you know, he's in the process of just banging this girl out, and it's loud, and it's sweaty, and... and How do you know it's sweaty, bro? Oh, because... Because he's sweaty. He's glistening. Yeah, he's glistening. <laughs> <laughs> because he's a $20 million actor, and they made him look good. Okay. And he's got these yellow... Uh, dishwashing. Ki- dishwashing gloves on that go up to his elbow, and Ken Norton walks in, and Brad Pitt's all naked with just uh, goggles and these the dishwashing gloves. Dishwashing gloves. And he goes, "You want some?" <laughs> 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 Fantastic movie. That's it, it, when Jen Aniston came into the picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> for real. It, it's it's a beautifully written movie. Uh, the dialogue. Some it's some of the best writing I've ever. 
like I've ever read and watched. It's I'm a big fan of his work. I, I've read a lot of his other stuff as well. Um, he's one of my favorite authors. So like, um, what what we have for you guys today is I, I was uh, I was fortunate enough to go to San Diego Comic Con 2015, and he had a panel. Chuck Chuck Palahniuk had a panel talking about the sequel to Fight Club that he is making. It's a comic book adaptation miniseries that he's releasing exclusively through comic books because as he explains in this interview, he doesn't have the the licensing rights to use the likeness of Brad Pitt or Edward Norton or anything like that. So it's this really unique story, but it's also a continuation of Fight Club 1. And Johnny's got exclusive permission to A, record it, and now release it on our podcast. So yep. Johnny's forcing us to do this. So thank you, Johnny. Yeah. He's getting paid off, huh? No, no I'm just kidding. No. No. Wayne on the radio, on Twitter, and Instagram. Dude, my Twitter game is weak. Yeah, it is. It's- All right, here's the thing. I don't even touch Twitter, but this guy helps, like... Uh, I'm about- Yo, you were in that photo that got retweeted 200 times by Lil Mix, wasn't uh, it? Was oh, like oh, the one where yeah. he was saying he was a creeper. <laughs> <laughs> Surprised? Yeah, you know, you know, yeah. the thing is, I wouldn't have even been on Twitter had it not been for this guy. I'm like sitting here, like, why is Twitter so hard for me? We, Instagram and Facebook, dude, I can do that. We so, broke it with Fifth Harmony, too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? With Fifth Harmony, too? Oh, yeah. I didn't get to meet Fifth Harmony. That I would have liked to meet Twitter them. met me. Dude, yeah. that would have been I, worth it. I smelled like girls' perfume all day long when Fifth Harmony was I imagine they smell scented. Oh, I imagine they, they come heavily scented. Oh, dude, well, the thing is, I got a hug from like they give. They were very, very gracious. Is there like, five of them? Yeah. Okay, I just want to make sure. I, I I wasn't sure. Like, Fifth Harmony, but there's four of us. I didn't want to assume, you know. Like. Yeah, you never know. Sometimes yeah. they're tricky like that, you know? Yeah. yeah. But they probably would have to They would have to back up, you know? I don't know. Like, she's Bethany. She can't. <laughs> <laughs> we don't put her out there. She just sings back up. One of them kissed me on the cheek and said, thank you very much. Oh, really? I bet. Yeah. Wow. I bet they did it as yeah. they stroked your dirty beard with yeah. more germs than toilet seats. all right so uh, we're going to play this um it it was recorded at san diego comic-con it's fantastic it's really interesting uh yeah give it a listen and mateen stewart this thursday oh yeah yeah we got to tease that mateen stewart yeah yeah this weekend he's at club 50 west he's at club 50 west he's also on thursday at comedy and other opinions uh at club 50 west all he's doing a lot of stuff at club 50 west this week see jonathan all you radio even plugs you too Jesus you plug Christ. you too, or you plug him too? <laughs> if you're plugging you too, I, I could care less about your show. <laughs> we'll save Let's that for that another again. day. <laughs> <laughs> I love being able to turn your mic off. Oh, <laughs> man. Security? I am Jack's smirking revenge. What the hell are you doing? That hurt. Why would you do that? Oh my god. Please give a warm welcome to our panelists tonight. Editor-in-Chief Dark Horse Comics, Scott Alley. Fantastic artist, Mr. David Mack. 
from Scotland, Cameron Stewart. And a man who needs no introduction, Mr. Chuck. Uh, thanks, everybody. I'm Scott Alley. I'm the editor on Fight Club. I get to work with these guys. Um, I want to call out uh, Alan Amato, who did the photos. This was a photo shoot we did last year during San Diego. And Alan has a Kickstarter that he's promoting here. David, can you tell him just a little bit about Temple of Art? Yeah, uh, we did a panel this morning on the Temple of Art panel. It's a documentary film. Uh, I was filming, uh, I was interviewing quite a bit of creators, writers, and artists of all kinds, where they talk about their creative process how they get their ideas, how they make it real, how they overcome their insecurities. Basically, how you, the recipe for turning your dreams into reality and getting over all the self-sabotaging in between. And it was a fantastic panel this morning. And um, uh, I, I'm, I'm in the film, uh, Chuck's in the film, a whole bunch of other people are, are in the film, Dave McKean, Grant Morrison, Wilson Kevich, Kent Williams. Uh, and he's an amazing photographer as well and uh, took incredible photos of, of the entire Fight Club crew. Yeah, so uh, check out Temple of Art. Um, just to bring you guys up to speed, if you missed it, on I think May 2nd, we released a free comic with um, an, a short adaptation of the end of the Fight Club novel that these guys worked on together. That was given away for free on May 2nd. At the end of May, we debuted issue one. Um, now the first two issues of Fight Club are on sale. Uh, this was a little game, a board game, that uh, Chuck conceived of that Nate and Cameron worked on together. Um, that was a promotional item. I think you can get them at the Dark Horse booth. And uh, this is an image that you see on the inside cover of the books. If you haven't seen the issues of the comics yet, they're, they're in comic shops all over the place, and I think you can get them at the Dark Horse booth downstairs, 2615. Yeah, Fight Club. Um, this was an early promo image that David did for the announcement last year when we hadn't done any work yet, except Chuck had already written the whole thing. Um, and David cranked that out just in time for, uh, for San Diego, and Karen did the wedding for them. Um, one of our guys handed out some white, some black and white bookmarks. Um, just a few of you out there have these black and white bookmarks. Can you tell them a little bit about the Fight Club 2 bookmarks? So the, uh, you know, we live in such a world where everything's on a page or a screen, almost always on a screen now. And we forget that the world includes tastes and textures and smells. And that smells really come in under the radar. And people have always told me that my books have more smells in them than anybody else's books. So for Bike Club 2, I wanted to commission scratch and sniff bookmarks <laughs> and there will be two the first one is keyed with five cents that each key to one of the five uh, first episodes and the second bookmark which will be released later this summer uh, includes uh, six through ten uh, five additional cents and uh, these will be available through comic book sellers for the most part but uh, whoever guesses the sense correctly will be eligible for some enormous prize that uh, Dark Horse is putting together. So scratch and sniff. Yeah, so just a few of you have these now. Scratch them, smell them. They're mostly horrible, right? <laughs> no, some of them are very sweet, and some of them 
will be under your fingernail regardless. <laughs> and for those of you who didn't get them, check with your local comic shop and they can check with Dark Horse uh, to try to get a bundle out. But that'll be, a press release will be going about, out about that tonight and it'll be going out to stores in late July. Um, this was David's cover for the first issue, Cameron's cover for the first issue. Um, you can see giant blocks of all these images in Dark Horse Booth. We have this great wall that David put most of it together for us, and he threw a few of our favorite covers like that. So come by the Dark Horse Booth and get a picture taken from the fight for the um, We're mostly going to open it up for questions for you guys. I think we all like to just have you guys ask questions. Looks like there's only the one mic. So um, in a few minutes, maybe step up politely and ask questions. The creative process on this book's been amazing. Like, a lot of times in comics, we don't really interact with each other that much. Somebody sends in a script, pages of artwork come in. There's been this great creative process. Cameron actually, Chuck and I both lived in Portland, and Cameron came and, uh, and lived in Portland for a little while before really starting work on the book. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and getting to know Chuck? In that way? Yeah, I think that, I mean, as I recall, I think that one of the things that was the sticking point with me getting the job or not getting the job was that Chuck wanted someone that was local and wanted to be able to actually get together and talk about the book in person rather than just do it through email or telephone. And, and um, I remember saying to you, you were like, yeah, it would be really great if you were in Portland. And I was like, well, then I guess I'm coming to Portland. It was, it, it, there was no... There was no debate. I he was living it. in Berlin. I was living in Berlin, Germany. Quite. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I, I came over and I just rented a place for the summer and, and we had these meetings where we would get together at Dave Stewart's house, um, our amazing colorist, um, who has an even more amazing house. And we would get together and just kind of like talk about the book and, what, and things that we want to do with it visually, uh, kind of the approach to it, the art style, the visual tricks that we wanted to, to do. And it was really great. It was, it was just like, a, it's an experience that I haven't had before in comics because as Scott said, typically the creative teams don't have a lot of interaction. And so, yeah, it was great. It was a really, really great time just being able to, to sit and talk it out and, and feel like we were all, you know, like jamming on an album or something. It was great. Yes, uh, just to interrupt, it's a rough segue, but last year uh, a couple folks showed up and they were so impressive that they impressed David Fincher and they're back again this year, uh, Jonathan and Natasha, and I would like to give them something to thank them and I would also kind of like to exploit them by asking them to stand up for a moment, please, Jonathan and Natasha. Questions. So, if anybody wants to be the first, step up to the mic. That would be terrific. There you go. My question is for all you guys. With uh, the success of this Fight Club 2, 
can we expect to maybe see some more of your stories, like Lullaby or Haunted, maybe in this format? There's no way I'm drawing guts. <laughs> How about Cannibal? <laughs> Just read that too. <laughs> so uh, right now, the thing that that I would like to do is, besides an, uh, another ten issues of Fight Club, is uh, James Franco is developing Rant as a movie, and he'll be starring in the title role. And knock on wood, when that's released, I would love to do the Rant sequel as a graphic novel. So that would be my next goal. Do you think you would do? Do you think you would do an original story in comic form? That's not a. That's not a sequel. I mean, like like a like a, a like a brand new thing. You know, I am so constantly swamped with ideas that it would be very. It's easy to conceive of that, but in a way, I'm a little terrified of gambling your time mm -hmm. and your skill on something that isn't a kind of established. You know what? Uh, brand. I, I just don't want to, you know, screw it up for you. Go for it. We can count on these guys to buy it, though, right? Yeah. yeah. We'll buy it. Thanks. More than anything, I want to say thank you for your work. Um, and secondly, was there something in your life that triggered the idea of doing Fight Club 2? Was there something in my life that triggered the idea? You know, in ten, oh, over 10 years ago, back in 2000, uh, Marvel and DC had come to me, and they, they said, we've got Neil Gaiman doing these short series, we'd like you to do a 14-book series, would you do it? And it was at a time when I, you know, my life was just so unstable, I didn't want to take off, you know, 12 months to try to learn a new storytelling form. But a friend of mine, the thriller writer Chelsea, came through a dinner party and she invited me and she invited Matt Fraction and Kelly Sue McCormick and Brian Michael Bendis. Kelly Sue McCormick. Oh, I'm sorry. And uh, Brian Michael Bendis and, and they all sort of ganged up and they said, you should do this thing. It'll be fun and we'll hold your hand, we'll walk you through it and, uh, and you should uh, do whatever you want, but Fight Club would be good. And I had turned in the story collection. And so for the first time in my career as a writer, I really had the decks cleared to learn a new form. And I had people who had volunteered to teach me. So just that whole combination of things led me to, to take it on again. Plus, over the years, I had no idea I would spend so much time talking about Fight Club. <laughs> and I thought this is my chance to create a thing that expands it into a kind of mythology both into the future and the past and and it's a form that's not long prose fiction it's not a book it's not a movie and so it won't be compared against the existing one and it has the greatest chance of establishing its own authority and so all of those combinations, all those elements made this the time to do it.
to speaking of uh, you know bringing it into that that next level. Uh, if you were asked, would you be interested in making a sequel for the film? So having an actual sequel. A film sequel to the yes. film? Or, uh, yeah, film sequel to Fight Club. You know. 20th Century Fox, thank God, owns those rights, so I really don't have any say in it. But if you were asked, if... if... Right now I'm holding my breath because last year, uh, when David and I uh, reconnected, we went out to breakfast and he told me that uh, he's... We've, we've held back the, the theatrical rights and David is uh, developing them as a rock opera. And it is... He's been working with the Broadway director, Julie Timor, who, uh, <laughs> so you can expect something enormous <laughs> and uh, and possibly the, the biggest project that David Fincher will ever do. <laughs> and I don't want to step on on that. So Is, isn't perhaps uh, the music uh, attachment to that um, Iron Sales and Trent Reznor? Right. David was taking it to Trent Reznor, and Trent was going to write the core of the score, the key songs. And once those were all in place, then he was going to make it more public. So that's about all I can say right now. Okay, well, that, was, that was more than a thank you. Uh, did you know right away that you wanted to make it a comic book, or were you ever debating about making it into a, a novel instead? It, that, if I made it into a novel, People are so passionate about the existing novel that it would always be compared to that novel. And, and if it was a film, it would be compared to the film. And so I, the, I thought the only way I could really have freedom to make it its own thing was as a graphic novel. I wouldn't have considered doing it as either a film or a book. Thank you. Thank you. I've read all your books. I think I've read Choke four or five times. Uh, but I had a question about, I keep on point with uh, Fight Club. Uh, in the book, the main character, everyone calls him Jack, um, just because he's not named in the book. Did you intentionally not name the main character because you wanted people to assign the ideals to their own lives in a sort of countercultural way? Or was that just because you didn't want to say that his name was Tyler? You know, it was more simple than that. Uh, I just forgot to give him a name. <laughs> and uh, really, my my uh, my method of writing is not description. I, I try to stay away from anything abstract. I hate giving characters names because I think a character is the actions they take. So I hate pausing for description, and I hate pausing to give abstract names to things. So, so often things will have allegorical names like Space Monkeys or Big Bob. They'll have these kind of strange names that aren't as abstract as Chuck Palahniuk. Because I, I see a name as the most abstract, most removed thing of the character. And so uh, that was another reason for not giving him a name, was to preclude that ultimate abstraction of character. I wanted people, there's, a, there's a parts of your brain that light up when they read a verb, and they light up as if you were actually doing that thing. You're throwing a ball or taking a punch or running down the street. But when they read a thought verb, 
or when they read description, those parts of the brain don't light up and you aren't as engaged. So I always go to the verb, I always go to action. And God bless Cameron Stewart, because he has got such a fantastic inventory of visual gesture that he can depict things in exactly the sort of physical gestural way that I would do it in a book, but he does it visually. And so often, he just, he has to nail that gesture at the moment of its greatest effectiveness, and he does that so perfectly. Thank you. So, uh, when I think of Fight Club, I think of something that's almost, uh, well, that, that is literary in the sense that it's not a story that where the main character goes on an adventure and defeats the villain. It's a story about a theme. It's a story about a central idea. Um, how do you approach making a sequel? Because you know, at, at, at the end, like it's not, it's not really like, like there's been something's been accomplished. It's like a theme has been explored. And how do you make a sequel to a book that explores a theme? So. Whether or not you're religious, do you go to church just once? I've gone to church once, yeah. But to stay in a kind of way of being, you have to practice it. It has to become a practice. You have to go to church, or you have to go to class, or you have to be among people who speak German. You have to immerse yourself in that milieu on a regular basis, or you will lose that access to that way of being. You'll start to become the kind of thrown way that you were always were before you found the new way. And so, Fight Club is not just about doing something once and being done. It's about, you know, that's kind of the American thing is you think, oh, I'm just gonna do it once and then everything will be set. But no, you find out that uh, you have to do it on a regular basis. And that's why revisiting the story, you know, just sort of, underlines that that need to stay in the practice of something. Um, it, it can't just happen once. That it, it fades away if it happens once. You have to do it over and over and explore other aspects of it or you lose it. Thematically, do you feel like the sequel is a lot different from the original? The sequel deals with all the issues, the themes of the original, but from a different direction. Because now the protagonist, instead of being a young man bitching about his upbringing, he is a father who finds himself being just as lousy a parent as he thought his father had been. So it's the same themes, but from a different, different angle. Thank you. Cinematically, Fight Club had one of the greatest endings ever. Like, that's my all-time favorite. Um, also, I love your writing style. It's very gritty and very fast-paced and um, not very censored, which I love. And I was wondering, was there ever a point in your life that you felt like you did have to be censored or that you were like, can I write this? Or like, how will people react? Were you ever concerned? You know, initially, with with even this project, I was putting things on the page and, and I'd like to throw it to Cameron for a moment because he came to me at one point and he said, 
I feel like I'm going to hell for some of these things you've asked me to draw. All right. So, could you address that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I remember. Uh, so, the, in the, if any, I'm assuming everybody's read the first couple issues, right? Um, when Marla returns to the support groups and she's with the um, the kids, the progeria kids, and um, we'd already established that, that the visual style of this book was going to be not strictly photorealistic artwork. It was going to be kind of a cartoony thing, and I was trying, I was sitting in my sketchbook drawing, doing studies of progeria children and trying to make them cartoonish and, and that would fit in. It sounds so bad saying this out loud. <laughs> and I remember just just drawing this and, and trying to like walk that tightrope of like sensitivity but also remaining uh, true to to the tone of what we were doing uh, while also just saying fuck it. Uh, <laughs> let's just go for it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I... I uh, yeah, it's it's a strange one, but I'm trying. I, I find like, the thing is, the Progeria Kids is like far from the worst thing in the book too. Like it gets. I just finished drawing a sequence that um, the issue five has a sequence that um, just made me laugh, laugh my ass off as I was drawing it, and then also had a sequence uh, where I almost passed out. <laughs> so yeah. It's pushed me to some unusual places that, like, drawing Batman never did, so... <laughs> and also, Scott, I have some things in maybe issue seven or eight concerning bodily fluids escaping and, and dotting the page in a really inappropriate way. <laughs> and I bounced it off Scott, and he said, you know, I think we should do more of it. I think he said something like, I think these people should be shocked and horrified that there's big cum stains all over their priceless first edition issue. And I have to draw this, by the way. But, but Dave's going to have to call it. Yes, that's right. So that's not something that the Doubleday would let me do. Because book book publishing is this constant negotiation with your editor about what's in good taste and what's distasteful. And we fought so back and forth about the soap made from liposuction fat in the original book. We fought over so many things and with Dark Horse there's no fighting. Is this, is this the most graphic thing that Dark Horse has published, would you say? I, I, no, uh, no, not at all. I well, mean, then we gotta push it further. Yeah, we gotta, we gotta do more. No, I mean, like, some of the manga that we publish, like, just saying the words chainsaw rape takes oh, you to right. a whole different place, right? right? <laughs> Thank you for putting so, that in our heads. We publish a lot of Japanese stuff, and they do some weird things. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't even know that was a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you called issue 10 final, but, you know, we can revisit. All right, thank you so much. Please keep going. We love it. Thank you.
Uh, my question is actually for, for Cameron and, and maybe David as well. Um, most of us, I think a lot of us in the room read the books you know, prior to the, the theatrical uh, cinematic release. And so we were able to kind of conjure what we thought these characters looked like in our own heads. But once the movie came out, then I think most of us probably then replaced them with, you know, Mr. Norton and Mr. Pitt and, and, and yada, yada, yada. But when reading the first two issues, the, the characters in, in the comic don't look like the characters on screen. So what were your inspirations to come up with these unique um, uh, kind of characteristics for these very iconic characters who most of us already have this image in our head now because of the movies. Right. Um, well, I, first of all, I think it's worth we we can't make it look like the characters in the film because that's I'm, that's correct, right? That's right. Like right. those okay. those these versions of the characters are you know property of 20th Century Fox. So we right off the bat, that's just out of out of uh, the question. Um, and it, yeah, it's a it's a weird thing to have to take. These, these characters that are, are so iconic and so kind of embedded in the popular consciousness um, and, and make them at once recognizable and completely different. It's like, draw Mickey Mouse, but it can't look anything like Mickey Mouse. But people should look at it and go, oh yeah, that's Mickey Mouse. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's a really difficult challenge. And ma mainly it just came from talking with Chuck. And in those meetings that I talked about earlier, that was, we talked about that. And, you know, what does what Tyler's hair look like? And I would sit and I would kind of sketch out little things and go, does it look like this? Does it look like this? And just kind of taking his direction. And then reading the novel again and getting my own kind of impressions of it and, and trying to do something that was uh, my own um, but also evocative of the characters that I think you know people have in their heads. So far it seems to be alright. I've had a lot of people coming up and saying that you know when they first saw Tyler with the long hair or, or whatever that you know they were a bit thrown by it, but by the end of the, of the first issue that they think of them as those characters now. So. I think it well, works. Well, and Chuck, you tend not to describe characters that much in your prose, right? And, and like Tyler gets some description in the first novel, the narrator gets gets none, right? So, so what was it like for you? I mean, working with these guys to visualize them when that's not like when you when you're writing lullaby or something, you don't you don't visualize them for the reader, right? You know, and Fight Club was so unique because. I, th I always think with your first book, you're, you're very much writing memoir, more so than you will do at any other point in your career. And so the characters in Fight Club were physically entirely based on my friends. And I actually just told Cameron their names, and he looked up their pictures on Facebook or whatever, yeah. and had I a general idea. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Stewart. I've been a big fan for a long time, so thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. So my question kind of follows up the one that happened a few people back. You don't normally give your narrator a name. You don't like to do that. Why did you choose Sebastian for this? <laughs> oh, long legal answer. It's like a story problem from the SATs. Uh, so 20th Century Fox realized there was no name, uh, but they needed a name for the screenplay. And so they thought, we'll call him Joe, because we have that chorus of I am Joe's blank, which was lifted from a series about anatomy written for Reader's Digest in my childhood. And so they were gonna call him Joe, 
And then Reader's Digest said, if you call him Joe, we will sue your ass off. <laughs> and if you use I am Joe's blank, we will sue you. I could use it in a book. Fair use copyright allows that, but not in a movie. And so they changed it to Jack. Therefore, they could say, I am Jack's whatever. And then when I went to do the comic, 20th Century Fox said, but if you use Jack, we're going to sue your ass off. <laughs> and so I thought I'd love to call him Cornelius, because that was my favorite monkey in uh, Planet of the Apes. <laughs> I ever got a monkey, I'd name it Cornelius. <laughs> but I had just used Cornelius as the male villain antagonist in A Beautiful You last fall, because I wanted a character who had uh, uh, the name of C. Linus Maxwell, so that the tabloids would nickname him Climaxwell, because he was so good in bed. <laughs> so I shot my wad with Cornelius already. <laughs> And Dr. Zayas really doesn't work. So. <laughs> no, but, but what for the uh, psychiatrist, it might have worked. That would have been cute. Oh, that would have been clever. I will fix it for the collection. <laughs> so Sebastian was scraping the bottom of the barrel. Oh. Thank you. Oh, and also Sebastian was kind of inspired by uh, Brian's Head Revisited. That character Sebastian that lugs around the teddy bear, possibly the most unlikable character in all of English literature. So. Uh, hi Chuck. Well, you're an accomplished prose writer, but you are a newcomer uh, as a comics book writer. And I wanted to ask, what are, if any, your comic book influences or uh, artists that have inspired you? If if it ever crosses your mind. Uh, that you wanted this book to feel sort of similar to some other uh, book that, that you like? You know, in a way, I didn't want to read a lot of books before I did this. Because I was really afraid of kind of uh, consciously or unconsciously absorbing somebody else's way of doing this. In a way, I wanted to make some mistakes, but make them with such authority that they would work. I wanted to try things that I hadn't learned from somebody else. Um, I was coached a lot, but I still wanted to really experiment and not just adopt elements of someone else's style. And going back 40 years, the comic books that I loved were the old EC horror comic books, and also the classics illustrated, which had very different styles, but I learned to really love the grotesque and to love big plot twists from the EC books. And I learned that I really liked a very pretentious, dramatic, operatic story from Classics Illustrated. So I like to combine this kind of operatic drama with elements of the grotesque. And overall, it's kind of a, there's a sense of camp in it. You know, that horrible things are depicted, but they're not invested with a lot of uh, emotional weight, so they occur as camp, and that's, Another thing I wanted to do, I didn't want to steal from somebody else. Thank you. Thank you. And that's, that was something that really appealed about Cameron's work, was that there was a kind of sense of cartooniness or campness 
in the characters. And they would allow me to really depict plot very, very clearly. But, uh, but there would be enough wiggle room that pe people could be with these otherwise tragic, tragic things. Please. Um, okay. To be honest about your writing, um, I think that it is beautiful to say. And um, unlike most people in here, I'm, I'm assuming, I actually did not read Fight Club first. The first book I read that was written by you was um, Infos with Monsters, which is amazing. And, um, <laughs> and something that got to me about your writing was its unique style. And I think a lot of times authors uh, can write a lot of different stories, but they sound really the same because people write the same. And I want to know what is the drive behind your style of writing, and it's it's really unique. And how is that? How does that come about? Because it can be really hard to get away from that, you know, rut that a lot of authors seem to be in lately. So often, the style of of, of a project arises from a certain type of nonfiction I'm reading at the time, because if you use nonfiction, a form of nonfiction as your basis, it already establishes what the transitions are going to be between things. For example, when I was writing Invisible Monsters, I was doing my laundry every week in this big downtown laundromat. And the only thing they had to read while the laundry was running were these big old fat Vogue magazines. And so I would read these Vogue magazines and you were always disoriented because the pages aren't numbered and there's all these ads and then there's perfume cards and then the stories jump, jump to page 500 and there's no page 500. And if you find the thread, then it says to jump somewhere else, and you find yourself constantly lost in these magazines. And the language itself is so over the top crazy. You know, 15 adjectives before the word sweater. <laughs> that I love the chaos of them. And the fact that no matter how many times I had picked up the June 1989 Spring Vogue, I could still open it up and there would be big chunks of it I had never seen before. It was always surprising. And so that was the nonfiction form that dictated the form of invisible monsters, the form of the language, the way that it jumps around physically within the book. And when you use a nonfiction form, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You, you have a, a structure dictated to you. That's something I like about comics, is that there is that panel structure that can be played with, but it's already more or less in place. And when you use a nonfiction form, you bring a, a sense of reality into the fictional story, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane starts as a newsreel. So it seems all the more real because it starts with a newsreel format and then it tells it, it fleshes out the story by using nonfiction journalists to elicit interviews. And so it seems so much more real because it starts from this nonfiction context. Fargo. The beginning of Fargo is that single card that says the following events are based on the truth, and we tell this story to something, something, and to honor the dead. And so you go into Fargo, which otherwise would be a kind of crazy, silly, raising Arizona, but that single card statement, you're about to see the Blair Witch tapes. These were discovered in a rotting trunk. 
it establishes a nonfiction context that lends a gravity to what was otherwise be a kind of silly story. And so by using a nonfiction form, lifted from fashion magazines, lifted from oral history books, which is what I did with Rant, it allows me to tell an even more ludicrous story, but to have a gravity and a believability inherent because of the structure, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> question were from the outlet cost per nation that's for media but if not I won't film it if I want to you want to film this question yeah just for a YouTube channel you, I, if you've got it, your stuff in place I don't see why not okay very cool <laughs> basically uh, two questions first of all how'd you come up with the name Tyler Durden Boy, that's an awkward question. <laughs> Tyler is easy, because when I was little, there was a Disney movie called Toby Tyler Goes to the Circus, and I was in second grade, and on Monday after we watched that movie Sunday night, a guy in my second grade came to me and explained that he had actually been the actor that played Toby Tyler on that movie. And I said, but you, you look nothing like him. And he said, that's because Disney flew me down to Los Angeles and gave me facial surgery. <laughs> this is a seven-year-old. And I made the movie, and then they turned my face back and flew me back to Burbank, Washington, population 500. And I believed him. And he was such a good liar. I, Tyler has always been kind of synonymous with a really good liar. <laughs> and the Durden part is a little awkward, because at the time I was writing the book, there was a man who worked for the corporation I worked for, and one day uh, a young woman was uh, discovered weeping in his department after hours. And it turned out that this man, who had a staff of almost exclusively really lovely, lovely young women, that he'd been hiring them, and then uh, sexually uh, boy, harassing them for their entire careers. And as soon as this one woman broke down, they all realized what was going on. And this man disappeared from the company in a big cloud of, of shame. And I thought, that's a name that so is kind of synonymous with uh, dirt. <laughs> and I, uh, I probably shouldn't have used a real person's name, but, uh... We'll cut it out. <laughs> That's it. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. Hi. Uh, I've been saving this question since the Fight Club screening at the Egyptian in Hollywood in, I think, October. Um, and it's related to Damned and Doomed. Are we going to get a third part to it? Because it felt like Maddie's story wasn't finished. Boy, there will be, but it's, uh, I've got to raise my stock. Because unless a book sells to a certain expectation, the publisher will not give you a contract for a sequel. And so I've got to raise my stock with 
a lot of other projects before I will be offered a contract to do the third dam. But it's in the works. Okay. So that's the honest truth. Thank you. Just a long-time fan of all your guys' work, I want to say that first, but my question's for you, Chuck. Um, maybe excluding Guts, I was wondering if there's ever been any extreme reactions to reading or to one of your books when it first came out that kind of shocked you, maybe positive or negative, but that just kind of blew you away. Boy, there was one story called Exodus from Haunted. It was about the woman who accidentally orders the anatomically correct child sex dolls and then ends up trying to save them. I read that, and by the end of it, half of this audience was weeping. What do you do with that? You can't do anything. So, I don't go for weeping, but then again, the uh, zombie story I read last year on tour about the kids basically giving themselves lobotomies, that is glorious in that it makes people weep. It makes people weep in an entirely different way. By the end of that story, it sounded like uh, tuberculosis ward. You could hear so much sniffing, sniffing, sniffing. And the lights would come up and there'd be all these hipsters with tears. This is the summer I had my girlfriend convinced me to read uh, the first of your novels that I've ever read, Rant. And I want to say I loved it, it was awesome. But my question for you is, what allows you to come up with such crazy awesome concepts like a man who can uh, <laughs> tell what you had for breakfast by, you know, going down on you, like, <laughs> and uh, stuff like that. I've lived a rich, full life. Hi guys. Uh, with uh, such a cult following that uh, Fight Club fans have, um, what I really liked about the, the writing in it was like the rawness. You know, like Bob had pitched it. Yeah. <laughs> Are we going to be expecting the same rawness? Because uh, these movies, the um, how do you say? High expectations could lead to like disappointment. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but what sort of similarities in the same spirit are we going to be expecting? If you can answer that without any spoilers, it's safe to say it is raw, squared. It is so much more than could ever have been done in the film, or that my very, very literate editor at Random House would have let me do. He would have pulled me back on the choke chain long before where I got to. So the comic really is, if I thought of it, I put it on the page. So, oh, you know, and I, I'd also kind of like to throw it for a moment to David Mack, because I've known David for years, and that made it very easy to instantly think of David for the covers, because the inside is kind of the conscious world, and David is so good at kind of presenting what I think is the the subconscious on the covers and making a compelling dream image that, that says everything in just one panel. So, David Pack.
you very much. Yeah, it's, it's just a pleasure to work with all of these guys. The team is, is amazing. And um, just just having the Fight Club 2 script sent to me, and then just you know, I had to read it immediately, been carrying it around in my backpack all over the world ever since. And you know, when I'm playing reading it, I'm just making notes about what might be a right image for each chapter. Um, it was just amazing to be a part of the project. The first day I met Chuck, he handed me the full script for the whole thing. And I went to a coffee shop and read it, and I felt like I had dynamite in my hands. You know, it just felt like such a special thing to be a part of right away. Um, but so the, the choice to get Cameron on board um, was a process Chuck and I went through looking at what the perfect style and story st storytelling style was, and it was always Cameron. The decision to have David on covers was a decision we made right away. But the thing about David is he works in so many different styles. And, and there was a process there of like, we knew David Mack, but what was, which David Mack were we gonna get for this? And, and you really explored a lot. I gave you a variety of different David Macks, and it wasn't quit looking for you. So then I asked you to send me uh, examples of which David Mack you wanted to show up. And so then you sent me uh, some other images um, that gave me a sense of what you were looking for. And uh, then we, we dove in from there. And it, it would, I, w I would sometimes go through and have my own ideas um, and send them sketches to get the feedback from Scott and Chuck. And sometimes they would send me emails with uh, some of their suggestions or ideas and incorporate that into it. And sometimes we'd go back and forth. Um, Chuck and I today were talking about on that cover to the third issue, it has those two boys. And uh, the feedback from Chuck was, okay, you have the, the two kids. And, and the, the idea is like it could be, you know, young, the young narrator with his young Tyler Durden friend, or maybe it's the narrator's son who has his own friend. And um, Chuck's response was, okay, but if you could give one, give the blonde haired boy a gun and have him pointing it to the head of the other, other kid, you know, because kids with guns, it's gonna be great. <laughs> and, and so I thought, oh, I thought, oh you know, so we, we talked back and forth about it, um, and then we settled on a grenade uh, instead. And then the idea was there, uh, that there's going to be an actual uh, grenade pin that's going to overlap the, uh, the gauze of the, the type, typography of the book um, to sort of cor uh, correspond to uh, that idea Chuck is doing inside where he has three-dimensional material objects um, on top of or uh, covering or censoring or um, some of the, the type and imagery inside the book. Well, and you were in LA when you were working on that cover and you had to run out and get yourself a grenade pin, right? I actually, I, w I was in, I was at close. I was just about to go to LA, but I got the grenade in Kentucky. Okay. So easier to do. <laughs> and, and then uh, the, the, the page beat that the issue before has a, their happy home, the American Gothic kind of idea with the home is constructed out of matchsticks. It's this idea that it's combustible. And uh, the, the next cover has all those, you know, it's the frame of the house with all the burnt, burnt matchsticks. And there's a, there's a few other covers that are coming up where I did a lot of burning uh, and things. Uh, I, I, was on my, I was on my front porch, matches, uh, a lot of burnt army men, all kinds of burnt stuff, and found a way to incorporate them into some of the upcoming covers. Yeah, wait till you see the army men cover, it's pretty cool. That was a weird It was an idea I, I had in my mind for a long time, and finally uh, a cover worked where burnt army men fit the story. <laughs>
I've had packets and packets of uh, these army men, you know, green army men, tan army men, burnt them all, mixed them together. Uh, yeah, I just wonder if you would answer a question about choke, is that right? About choke? Yeah, is that it's off topic? Yeah, go for it. Um, the character Denny is probably the most inspirational character I've ever read in the book. What was um, what was your inspiration for him? Boy, I had a, I had a friend named Denny, and Denny <laughs> was just so crazy and so open to the world, and just so not self-destructive crazy, but Denny just seemed to want to try everything. And uh, he was just a, such an innocent, and he died very young of AIDS. And so the name of Denny and this persona, is, I just wanted to capture Denny uh, with a, a similar character, so. Thanks, everybody. So we're doing a signing tomorrow. We've got these guys signing in the Dark Horse booth at 11 o'clock. 11 to 1. Right. Okay. Booth 2615. Come on down and check out the books and say hi to these guys. We'll have some giveaways and you can get it signed by Chuck. Sure. Take it out. I think they're going to throw us out of the room. No, it's good. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.